Welcome to this video class. We continue in 1 Peter in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. We hope you have your Bible ready. 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the previous class, we studied verses 13 through 17 concerning the Christian's obligation to obey governing authorities, and we admitted the challenge of this obligation. But we took nothing away from this obligation. Two phrases in particular caught our attention. Be subject for the Lord's sake, and in verse 16, live as servants of God. In the verses for today, another obligation, followed by some instructions about suffering and remembering who suffered for us. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Let me begin at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The word translated servants in 1 Peter 2.18 is a word often used to identify household servants or domestic workers back then. One translation reads, you who are household servants. Some scholars argue slaves is too strong a term in this particular context. I often consult Thayer's dictionary, and he says, one who lives in the house with another, spoken of all who were under the authority of one and the same householder, a servant, a domestic. Well, whether this is about slaves or limited to household servants, the principle finds application in settings where we are under human authority. And the rule God expects of us is be subject to your masters. 
as employees. This ought to be practiced by Christians today. Simply stated, we ought to do what the boss says. We ought to work under the standards and policies of the company we work for to the best of our ability according to our job description and what our supervisor expects. Now, of course, the same exception applies here that we brought up earlier based on what we read in Acts chapter 4 and 5. If any human authority demands that we do anything wrong or sinful, we should refuse to obey men because of our submission to the higher authority, to God. Otherwise, our relationship is defined by this injunction, be submissive or be subject. There are three very important words in this verse. See if you can find the three very important words I'm talking about. With all respect, we should serve, we should do the work we agreed to do, but not just in our external behavior. There should be an attitude of respect for those who have authority over us. The New King James says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And the next part of this could be, depending upon your boss, a tremendous challenge. It says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. If you have the NIV, it says, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. In the Amplified Bible, not only to those who are kind and considerate and reasonable, but also to those who are surly, overbearing, unjust, and crooked. If you've been in the workforce for a few years, you know there are both kinds of bosses. Some go out of their way to be kind and fair and considerate, reasonable in their demands. Others display no such good attitude. And the temptation we may face is to obey the supervisor we consider to be good, but disregard the supervisor we consider to be not good. The rule set forth here is not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unjust. I think what the Christian must do is look beyond the immediate behavior of the person to the office, to the responsibility we have in the concept of submission as it has been defined by God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Supervisors, bosses, masters have obligation. That's brought up over in Colossians 4 and verse 1. A quick takeaway here. Christians are people who want to do what is right in every relationship, knowing we have a master in heaven. Toward the government, toward family, toward fellow Christians, toward co-workers and employers and employees and neighbors. We are people who want to do the will of God 
in all of our relational circumstances. Let's take up the next two verses, 19 and 20. 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Looking at these two verses, here's a good starting point. Twice, Peter mentions a gracious thing. Then he tells us what that gracious thing is. He says, according to the English Standard Version, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, that is a gracious thing. Think about Christians back then. They have jobs, but their masters are not gentle. Perhaps their masters are unkind to Christians, unbelievers, who were not fair with their workers who were Christians. You had to keep the job, but because of your faith, you were not treated fairly. Peter says to have endurance and patience and be submissive in that circumstance. That's a gracious thing. Now, it is easy for us to say, leave that job and get another job. It wasn't like that in the first century under the Roman Empire economy. We cannot make judgments based on our economy, our opportunities, and our advantages. For those people, in the time of the Roman Empire, it wasn't like it is today, especially for Christians. So to endure suffering in your job, mindful of God, Peter says, a gracious thing. To endure suffering while unjustly being treated mindful of God, a gracious thing. One translation renders verse 19 this way, for it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. In the New Living Testament, for God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. We must be clear in our thinking about verse 19. Endurance of pain is commendable and praiseworthy when it is unjust and done as an act of conscience before God. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Now, verse 20. Verse 20 describes a situation not like verse 18. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, the first part of verse 20 describes a situation not like verse 19. In verse 19, you're suffering for doing what is right before God. That's honorable. That finds favor with God. In verse 20, Peter raises a rhetorical question 
about a different situation. The situation where the pain you endure is pain you caused by your own sin. To endure that kind of suffering does not rise to the level of what is commended. Peter was writing to Christians in Asia Minor who were suffering for righteousness' sake, enduring grief because of the activity of their faith, because of the activity of their faith, enduring grief. But they desire to have a good conscience before God. Peter said that's a good thing. It is commendable to suffer for righteousness' sake. It finds favor with God. I'm going to move now to verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." When we hear, believe, and obey the gospel, we are accepting the invitation of God to follow Christ's example, even to participate in his suffering, to suffer for righteousness' sake as he did. If Christ was willing to suffer for doing right, and he is our example, we should be willing to suffer for doing right. He is our example. It says in verse 21, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. The word example, may I call your attention to that? The word example is from a Greek word used in an educational setting. To learn the letters of the alphabet, teachers would show beginners a model for their imitation. The same method was used when many of us were in school. The teacher would write on the board the ABCs, and the students would copy the model. Jesus, in his life, writes the model for us to copy, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He is my perfect model. His attitude his commitment to God, his willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake, his courage in teaching the truth, his treatment of people with compassion, justice, and love. Jesus lived this way, becoming the model for us to follow. I hope it is true of each of us that we are following his model. And when we think of an example, a model of behavior. We need a model without any flaws. And we have that in Christ. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
This may be an allusion or a partial quotation from the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52 and 53. Jesus committed no sin, no sinful thoughts, no sinful deeds, no sin at any time in his life. So, not only do we have a model of good behavior, we have an absolutely perfect model of good behavior. As long as you're following Christ, you'll never be led astray. He committed no sin. As long as we follow him, we are never led into any sin and we are not lost. In particular, it says here, no deceit was in his mouth. He was perfectly honest, absolutely sincere, genuine, no hidden agenda. Only truth came from his mouth and lived in his life. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Somebody says, well, what about when he was punished and spoken against? Keep reading. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges unjustly. When subjected to abuse, we may be tempted to abuse back, to respond to our accuser or our enemy in kind, to retaliate. It was the unwritten law of the playground when I was in elementary school. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them back, you get even. But we have in Jesus a perfect model. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, but did not respond against his enemies with any carnal vengeance. He uttered no threats. What did he do? He just kept trusting in God. It says he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. We have in Jesus a perfect model of behavior. Here's what he did for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Very important to our faith and knowledge that we understand this phrase. He himself bore our sins. The word bore, or in some translations, bear, simply means to carry. If you see me coming, loaded down with things, you may come to me and say, let me carry that for you. That's how simple this is. To bear is to carry, to take the load. Jesus, in his suffering and death, took on to himself the load of our sin. This doesn't mean he became a sinner. We have just read back in verse 22, he committed no sin. He had no sin of his own, but he was willing to carry, to bear our load. Jesus, in his suffering and death, took on to himself the load of our sin. How did he do this? By suffering the penalty, dying for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree 
or the cross. Look at the purpose. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus died for our sin that we might die to sin. Get away from it. Kill it. He was living to carry, to bear our load. He was willing to carry and bear our load by dying for us, by suffering the penalty we deserve so that we can die to sin, separate ourselves from sin, and live to righteousness. It can be said by his stripes, we are healed. And why was this needed? Verse 25, you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Sinners are compared to sheep, wandering without direction, going astray, starving to death. But Christians are compared to sheep, now returned to the shepherd, who is the guardian of our souls. The truth taught here in this imagery should convict sinners of their need and motivate Christians to continue to entrust their souls to God through Christ, the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Here's some lessons we need to learn from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Your boss may not be completely righteous and just, but unless you are asked to sin, this passage says, be subject. Remember what a gracious thing is to be doing what is right before God while suffering patiently. Remember what isn't commendable to sin and claim that you're courageous in bearing the consequences of your own sin. That isn't commendable. Christ is our perfect model of behavior. So when we're following him, we are never led by him to do anything wrong. He himself bore our sins. Thank you for being with us.